Welcome. It's good to see everybody this morning. Thank you so much for coming. We're on a 13-week series called Surviving Suffering, and we're on number eight. Now, if you'd like to get the entire series, it is on our website, and you can go back and look at the website. I encourage you to do it, just in the sense that we've been working through the book of Job, and what does Job say? What does Job proclaim? And uh, you definitely want to um, look at those sermons and look at the book of Job and see what uh, God's message is in the book of Job and what we can learn from it in regards to surviving suffering. So we're on week eight today, and every sermon has a principle, a point, and how to survive. And the one we're going to look at today in the book of Job is to survive suffering. You need to trust in God's sovereign control and that he knows best. Sovereign. If you say the word sovereign, there's a tension that takes place across the room. Sovereignty. Why does attention take place? Is because it's been a conflict all the way through the ages. Whenever you talk about the sovereignty of God, Calvinism and Arminianism comes up to mind. You think the church splits. You think of the things that took place in the past and it's like, oh boy, we're going to talk about sovereignty. Well, what is sovereignty? Sovereignty is one who exercises supreme and permanent authority, meaning that God's in control and we are not. As I mentioned before, the church has been divided um, in the past in regards to this topic on sovereignty because it's it's beyond our mind. Um, but it's a little different in our modern world as we're facing now. The topic of sovereignty um, is still a huge, huge subject in regards to the Protestant church. Uh, but it comes from a different formula in the modern world that we are living now. And the formula that it comes with is mixed with suffering. In fact, if you look at sovereignty and suffering. Sovereignty, again, means one who exercises supreme control. God is in control and you are not. There's a lot of people that hate God, isn't there? And why do people hate God? Because if God is in control and I suffer, I'm going to put his authority under question. In fact, I'm going to start asking him a little bit of uh, questions in regard to what he's doing in regards to suffering that is taking place. And mixing those two words of God is sovereign, God is in control, meaning that we suffer and we all know that we do, but he has the authority to maybe wipe it out. Or he has authority to maybe get rid of it once and for all, absolutely right now. He has the authority to make it stop today and he doesn't and he's sovereign and there is a tension that takes place between us and the tension arises most when we suffer the hardest god you must not be in control god you must not be all powerful god you must not be paying attention god i must be on my own the movement that has taken place is an apostolic movement, and they call it the Apostolic Reformation. I will tell you that it's um, um, not biblical whatsoever. But what does the Apostolic Reformation look like? It's, it's a prosperity gospel that is out there. We can't put sovereignty and suffering together. And since we can't put sovereignty and suffering together and can't give an explanation to it, we start building a different gospel. We start building a different Bible. We start looking at the Bible and we start looking at it through a completely different lens. And there's many churches that are looking through this lens. And I will tell you that the lens that they're looking at, and I will say that this is heresy, the way that they are looking at it is driven by this word trust. 
If you trust, you will get. If you trust God, you will get. Oh, by the way, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died, and when he died, he rose again. And if you trust God, you will get. You'll get what? You'll get healing. If you trust God, you will get healing. If you don't trust God, then God's not going to heal you. And this apostolic movement has come to pastors that carry an anointing literally by God. And this anointing by God is somebody who is literally one who has a gift of healing or one who has the gift of prophecy. And it looks like what you need to do is you need to come down to the front and I will pray over you. And as I pray over you, will be healed. And if you're not healed, it's because you don't trust enough. Because I trust it will take place, but because you don't trust enough. So if you trust enough, your healing of cancer will take place. If you trust enough, your healing of sickness will happen. If you trust enough, you will be completely taken care of. In fact, if you trust enough, do you know what's going to happen to you? Prosperity is going to come your way. If you trust enough, you'll get that job you've always wanted. If you trust enough, God doesn't want people to be poor. God wants people to be rich. By the way, Jesus died, he rose again. But if you trust enough, you can be wealthy through that death and resurrection because you're given this spirit, spirit of power. If you trust enough, you'll get more of the spirit. If you trust enough, you will get a stronger enlightenment. If you trust enough, you can even raise somebody from the dead. And the way that you can raise somebody from the dead is it was Jesus' mission that he was here on earth. And see what happened is Jesus emptied himself, everything he was as God. And he left it all into heaven. And he came to earth. And when he lived the life we should live, and he lived that perfect life, the Spirit filled him in regards to that perfect life. Remember, he's not God. The Spirit filled him in regards to that perfect life. And the Spirit kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And he looked around and he says, I don't want anybody sick. So he healed him. I don't want people dead. So he raised him from the dead. Then Jesus died. Jesus rose. And then he ascended into heaven. And now God is using us to do Jesus' ministry in regards that if I honor God enough, if I trust God enough, then God will fill me with his spirit powerful enough to take care of you, to take care of the congregation. Is it wrong? Is it heresy? Is it biblical? It's not biblical. It is wrong. It is heresy. It is not what the Bible teaches. But why do we do it? Why are the, in America, people uh, grabbing a hold of it? Why are people glomming onto it? Why are those churches absolutely filling? And the reason why they're filling is because they want sovereignty of God because they are sick and tired of suffering. They're tired of suffering. And they say, God does not want suffering. Therefore, I can heal. I will heal. Come to my church and it will be done so I can root suffering completely and entirely out of your life. People are showing up. Church in the groves. Trust and you will get. We hear from our pulpit all the time. You need to trust God. Absolutely trust God. But my encouragement would be don't trust to get. Trust because he's good. Trust because he is good. So I'm captivated by a message, the message in the Bible. And uh, being captivated by a message in the Bible is, is can be dangerous. 
if you have wrong theology. And I will tell you that I would lose sleep over having the wrong theology. And I even worry about it myself. In fact, last week, I was even praying in tears this last week, God, please strike me dead if I have wrong theology. If I've looked at your Bible and tried to understand it, and then I come up with a wrong answer, and then I present it to the people, I need help. Because I have been captivated by the Word of God. But what is it that captivates me? Is it what I can get from God now? Or is what I received from God 2,000 years ago? The thing that has captivated me is not what I can get from God now. But what was done 2,000 years ago at the cross that literally saved my soul? might need to know your theology of your pastor, but I never look at right now and judge God on what he's doing or what he's not doing and make a, a, a claim on whether he's good or whether he's not in regards to what I see him present in my life right now. What I do is I go right back to that cross and I judge and I make a claim and what do I see? A crucified Savior that loves me so much that he would die and that he rose again to save my soul. Do I trust God? I trust God. Why? Because of what took place 2,000 years ago. Because of what took place 2,000 years ago. He's in control. And he's, un, and he's doing it for my purpose. He's doing it not for my purpose. He's in control and he's in it for my good and for his glory and I completely trust him. So authority or suffering comes my way. As suffering comes my way, do I question God? No, I sit there and I stare at the cross. Do I question God? No, I sit there and stare at the cross. Going through the book of Job, and as we're going through the book of Job, we're going to have one chapter that we are going to look at that was literally dropped from the sky, it seems like. Um, from who? I have no idea. But before I get into that chapter, and it's chapter 28, uh, the first two chapters in the book of Job just talks about God's deal with Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? You want to take him? Satan takes him. And what does he do? He inflicts an extreme amount of pain on him. That's in regards to chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 3 through 27, there's a dialogue between Job and his friends trying to figure out what is going on and why Job is suffering and what is God doing in the process of suffering. So there's just this dialogue that literally gets intense and gets extremely emotional. If you've ever seen a soap opera, <laughs> if you want to read about one in the Bible, you know, Job 3 through 27, uh, you will definitely see him because this dialogue gets crazy and intense. And all of a sudden there's this like peaceful chapter, this chapter where there's not this emotional frustration. It's chapter 28. And chapter 28 is a poem and it's probably one of the most beautiful poems even in the entire scripture, in the entire Bible. And it's a poem that fits directly into the book. So it doesn't interrupt the book. In other words, the book is going through 3 through 27. This dialogue has taken place. And all of a sudden, Job is talking in chapter 27. And then this poem gets put in there. And then Job continues to talk. And the scholars are really confused of where this poem even came from. What I mean by confused where this poem came from, it's like, I don't think Job wrote it, is what the scholars believe. Because I tell you, he's emotional in chapter 27, he's emotional in chapter 29, but chapter 28, there is just a solid stance of a theological base that gives the majesty and glory to God in a very calm voice. 
Who wrote that? Who said that? Did Job read that? Did Job not read it? They don't know who wrote it. But we, again, don't even know who wrote the book of Job. And we don't even really even understand the time that the book of Job was even written. It might even be the first book that was written in the entire Bible. So there's a very confusing passage of in regards to how it got there. But I will tell you that it is probably the richest, it is the richest passage in Job and one of the richest in the Bible. I'm not going to read the whole poem. I'm going to read parts of the poem and then we're going to work through it. Job 28. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he establishes the force of the wind and the measured the waters out, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. So you definitely see a word that the entire poem is working on and consistently brings up and asking a question with, and that word is wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Isn't the book of Job about suffering? Well, here's wisdom put into the book of Job during the process of suffering. What is the word wisdom? What does it mean? Number two, wisdom means the right use of knowledge. It's what wisdom is, the right use of knowledge. I have a lot of things in my head. But as I have these things in my head, I need to make a decision on what to do with them. When I make a decision on what to do, what is in my head, you call that wisdom. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is in my head. Wisdom is responding to the knowledge that is in my head. Charles Spurgeon said, To know is not to be wise. Many people know a great deal and are greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as the knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge, that is wisdom. Just gave you kind of a couple of examples that are down below. Knowledge understands the light has turned red and the wisdom applies the brakes. Gives us a picture of what wisdom looks like. You are not a wise person if you do not apply the brakes when the light turns red. You have the knowledge that the white light is red, but it takes wisdom with the knowledge to make sure there's not an accident. Knowledge sees the quicksand, and what does wisdom do? Walks around it. Knowledge memorizes the Ten Commandments, and wisdom obeys them. Knowledge learns from God, and wisdom loves him. God knows what is best. His wisdom has allowed suffering. Is God in control? The answer is yes. The answer is that he is in sovereign. But you also know that the answer is we suffer. You see what takes place in God's mind is he has all this knowledge that is in his mind. He has all this information. He is completely infinite in his knowledge. And being infinite in his knowledge, he is going to make a decision. 
And what is the decision going to be as he looks at the whole spectrum of life, the whole spectrum of glory, and the whole spectrum of eternity? What is his wisdom going to be with all the knowledge in his head? His wisdom is going to say, I will allow suffering, and I won't stop it today. He looks into the mind. He observes his resources. He sees a greater good than we can possibly ever see, and then he allows suffering. A man's mind is completely different. (laughs) What is man's mind? Man's mind, when he sees suffering, is there somebody that must not be in control. Why? Because this world is out of control. My life is out of control. And a God who exists would not be a God that would allow this to take place with me. God must be defeated God must not be sovereign. There must be a preacher out there that has more authority and sovereignty than God because maybe he can heal me and get me out of this because God isn't right now. There's a tension between man and God on the topic of suffering. And the reason why is because we can't comprehend God's reasoning. We can't comprehend the reason why he has chosen to allow suffering. Let's look at this verse, or this passage that was dropped down from who knows where and placed in the book of Job. What does it say? The first thing it says is there is more more to life than we can understand with our senses. Everybody asks what life is about. What is life about? Because if I can figure out what it is about, then I'll live for it. Many people say life is about finding happiness. Therefore, what are you going to do? You're going to create the conditions to find happiness. And anything that is a threat to the conditions that will not give you happiness, you annihilate and you do away with them. Why? Because your life is specifically about happiness and you have absolutely zero use for suffering because your focus, your goal, your mission, your meaning, your purpose is to find happiness in the world. Maybe it is your purpose and what life is about is to be healthy. Maybe... What life is about for you is to be free. Maybe what life is about to be wealthy. Maybe these are the things that we want. We look in the Bible to say, is there any way that God can give me these things? Because God would not want anything against me. God would not want me to suffer. God would never want that to take place. Job 28 says this, But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. And it cannot be found in the land of the living. God's wisdom is not found in the land of the living. And I will tell you that suffering threatens people in the land of the living. It threatens people. What does it threaten? It threatens happiness. It threatens health. It threatens freedom. It threatens wealth. It threatens all those things. And therefore we have no use for it and often come up with a conclusion that I have no use for God because he's allowed it to happen to me. If God allows suffering, then God is doing something bigger and better than happiness, health, freedom, and wealth. Because he has allowed it. If he's sovereign, he has allowed it. But what is going on in his mind? It says that wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living. But let's explore his head a little bit. Is there something else that he wants to give us that is better than absolutely anything? Is there something else, another purpose of why suffering is here that God is thinking with his whole perspective of knowledge? 
that we can receive that would give us a taste of maybe something good? Don't want to go into great detail, but maybe God wants to give us an extreme rich intimacy with God. Maybe God's driving purpose and driving focus and driving source of your life is that you will have this deep, rich intimacy with God that you would love so far beyond the earth that it is the earth is not what makes you happy. The earth is not what gets you free. The earth is not what makes you healthy. Oh, if I could just stand in the presence of God while I sit here on earth and if I could just soak in the presence of God, oh, it's going to be good. Paul said the words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Maybe Paul tasted something like that. Maybe God, under his sovereign control, looked down and says, you know, I'm going to allow suffering because my focus is a little bit different than man's focus. And what I want for them, they literally want for themselves, but they don't know it. Maybe building a character that the world around them needs. Maybe if people suffer, I will tell you what takes place is their personality, their behavior, the real you starts to stack out. And when the real you starts to stick out, I will tell you that we look at Paul's passage, for me to live to Christ is to die his gain. His suffering was literally his pulpit. He spoke powerfully through why he suffered. And he changed the world as a result of his suffering. And when he changed the world as a result of his suffering, what did people see? Did they see Paul, a powerful man? No, they saw Christ, a beautiful Christ that was literally in Paul. That's why he says the words, count it all joy. James says these words, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Well, this is not my mind. My mind would say get rid of suffering, but maybe God has something bigger in mind. Maybe it's to give you an amazing glory after the resurrection. God, I really don't want to talk about my resurrection right now. What I really want to talk about is my issue that I'm going through and why I'm going through it and why you're allowing it. God say, yeah, but just think about this resurrection at the end. In fact, the more you suffer, the more beautiful, the more glorious, the more powerful your resurrection will be, and it will last for an extreme eternity. That's why those in Hebrews says others were tortured and refused to be released so that they would gain a better resurrection. There's suffering that takes place. We can get mad at God. We can get angry at God. Why do you allow it? Why do you let it happen? And we can condemn God. We can judge God. We can say God is not sovereign. And according to this passage, wisdom isn't found in the land of the living. And I am doing something that you probably just don't understand. Number four, there's more going on than we think there is. Is it possible that God is doing things we don't know about? The answer is, no, it's not possible. Everything that we know God is doing, we, we know about. That's why he gave us the Bible. We know everything he's doing. Absolutely not. There is a lot that God is doing that we do not know about. In fact, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed in his word belongs to us. It says there is secret things that are out there that God is doing behind our back that we don't know about because he's God but he's working for his glory and our good in that process and therefore has allowed suffering. But when we go through suffering, I will tell you again, we won't bring God into question, but Job 28 says, Wisdom is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. I'm doing a lot that you don't know about. I am taking God. I am taking 
my knowledge and I am using it for my glory and for your good and your suffering. But I am sovereign. Trust me. Number five, we only have a little glimpse of reality. I like to raft um, down the Deschutes River. It's a river where I take a lot of people, and there's one particular rapid that I really don't want people to fall in. It's Oak Springs, and what happens is you go down the first drop, and it's a big drop, and you go into this huge hydraulic of water, and sometimes people fall out. I don't care if they fall out. Um, the reason why is because they're not going to get hurt. They'll be okay. Yeah, they'll go into that huge hydraulic of water, and they will spin, and they will turn. They would feel out of control. They will freak out. It's not really a healthy situation in their mind, but I'm all right. I can relax with that. But what I can't relax with is that after they come up, if they are downstream of my boat, there is rock shelves that are at the bottom of that rapid. And it goes for a long time, a couple hundred yards. And a rock shelf means the water is this thick. And also, there's a cliff that goes 20 feet deep, 15 feet deep. So the water is really deep and really shallow into these rock cliffs. The worst situation that could happen in my rafting experiences, if you ever come with me in the back of my mind, as me being a guide, is somebody is downstream of my boat, and my they go up against a rock shelf, and my raft comes up behind them and literally crushes them against the rock shelf. Because you've got a couple thousand pounds of pressure breaking bones against these sharp rock shelf. And do you know what they call it in rafting? They call it mayonnaise. So it's not really a good situation to take place. So I have commands. Somebody falls out of the boat. They're downstream of my boat. Do you know what my command is? Nobody likes it. Get away from the boat. <laughs> get away from the boat. And I tell everybody in my raft, get them away. Get away from the swimmer. Get away from the swimmer. Now, if you're in the water, the first thing you want to do is say, I got to get back into the boat. That's the only thing you think about. But they don't have the whole perspective in mind. They don't have a whole glimpse of reality. The reality is that I'm in the water and I need to get out. Well, the real reality is you're downstream of the boat and you can be crushed if the boat doesn't get away from you. See, God is complete different taste of reality. So yes, suffering has taken place, but everything is in God's perspective. Job 28 Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached your ears. Just a tiny rumor of it has reached your ears. You see suffering, you see death, you see destruction, but you haven't seen the entire picture. You haven't seen what I've seen. I've allowed suffering and I've allowed suffering for a reason, and you as human beings and me don't really know the reason that he does. But he does. And he says the reason is good. Well, how can it be good? How can it be good? We despise suffering. Let me just give you some things that are taking place according to statistics. Suffering moves believers to hate God and leave the church. Suffering moves believers to hate God and leaves the church. Suffering moves unbelievers from out there into the church. Suffering moves unbelievers out there into the church. The greatest revival that's taken place in this world right now is in China. What's happening in China? A horrific amount of suffering. And when they sign up for Christianity, what happens then? 
the horrific amount of suffering increases tenfold as they go underground. And the church is absolutely exploding underground. Why? Because there is an answer and people are responding to the answer. And the suffering that has taken place, are they look at it, there's a purpose behind it, there's a reason behind it, and they're embracing God and they will live through it because they have the answer inside of it. But we again put God on the court. We put God on the hot seat. And we start asking questions. I just don't understand, God, why you let suffering take place. You must not exist. Number six, God sees things from a different perspective. 2012, I rafted down the Grand Canyon, and I will tell you it was an emotional experience for me, and the reason why is because I saw the handiwork of God in the full form. A canyon that was beautifully created by God, a canyon that displayed his mind, displayed his artwork, displayed his beauty, and all it was is just a small piece of his creation, and I got a glimpse of his glory seeing what he literally created. I also went with a geologist. Geologist had nothing to do with God, complete atheist that existed to prove that God did not exist. And what happened when he went down the canyon? Well, these billions and billions and billions and billions of years of water going through here is of cut this rock and cut that rock and cut that rock. And I just looked at him and said, how can you say that that is beautiful? I mean, there's so much more to the Grand Canyon than a billion of years that cuts through rocks. There's a God's mind that literally created a God who is beautiful, a God who is strong, a God who has glory. How do you view suffering? We view it from different perspectives. He viewed it from my one perspective. I viewed it from another perspective. But how does a man view suffering compared to how does God view suffering? This is how a man views suffering. Suffering is horrible, painful, disgraceful, all-consuming trash. And if God doesn't answer my prayers to get suffering out of my life, then he is absolutely no good at all. That's how we view suffering in this world, at least in the West. How does God view suffering? Maybe God looks at suffering and says, Suffering gave my people a revelation of my love. When Jesus died on the cross, they would have never seen my love. They would have never seen my beauty. They would have never seen my character. They would never have seen my commitment if it wasn't for this word, suffering, and if that cross never took place. Suffering gave human beings a revelation of me. Maybe God looks at it that way. And says, eh, I think I'll allow it to continue because it's a golden jewel. Suffering gave a revelation. Maybe this is God talking. Suffering gave a revelation, a commitment to my holiness and my hate for sin. A commitment to my holiness and my hate for sin. I went to the cross and I suffered at the cross because I'm committed to my holy name and I'm committed to the sinner that has defiled my holy name. And at that cross of suffering, you see my glory more powerful than anywhere else in the entire universe. Maybe suffering just gives us a revelation of hate for sin and God wants us to look at the cross and see his suffering and say, you know what? God hates sin that much. Maybe I should hate it as well. Suffering, there's a study, and I, you know, I just studied this topic of suffering, and this is a secular magazine that says suffering gives benefits, and this is a secular magazine, but what kind of benefits does suffering give? Suffering builds deeper relationships. You ever seen an older couple that just take care of each other at the end of the years, open their doors, push in wheelchairs, surviving together? They didn't get there overnight. They suffered through life 
to be strong enough to suffer those last moments of life. And their relationship is there. Suffering, this is just statistics, become more, you come, become more immune to people. What are people feeling? What are people thinking? If you are not suffering and they are, you have no idea what they're thinking. You have no idea what they're feeling. But when I suffer, I can connect with them in a way that they've, I've never connected with them before. Suffering gives more resilience. Suffering changes priorities. Suffering does a lot of things that are good. But boy, we hate it. Job 28 says, God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under heaven. God understands the way of it. And he knows where wisdom dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. I know everything that is going on. And I have allowed it to continue. Number seven, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. Again, if I had all sovereignty, if I had all control, if I had all power, I would do away with suffering. If I was God, suffering would be over. But I don't know what God knows. I don't have the knowledge of God. But if I did, would I allow suffering? If you did, had the knowledge of God, would you allow suffering to continue to take place in this earth? If he allows it, then your answer would be yes. Job 28, when he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters... When he made a decree for the rain and the path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and he appraised it. He looked at wisdom, the decisions that he is going to make with his knowledge, and he appraised it. What does appraise it mean? It means to score with a mark, to tally, to record, to subscribe, to recount, to celebrate. I looked at my wisdom and I appraised it, and then he confirmed it, and then he tested it, And then he allowed it. He's thinking with his mind. It's not ours. It's with his. Eight, God's priorities are different than ours. It's interesting about this poem is that verse um, 28, there's a huge, huge turn. What I mean by a huge, huge turn is when we start talking about wisdom, we're talking about God's wisdom and we're reflecting on it. Wisdom does not dwell, is not in the land of the living. Wisdom is literally beyond your mind. Wisdom is something that you can't even observe, you can't even look at. You're just talking about it and you're sitting back reflecting on it. Verse 28 does a whole change into the poem. And the change, it goes from reflection to action. He's talking about wisdom and his wisdom. And then he points a finger right at us. And what's the finger that he points? And he said... To man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. God is saying in this passage, this is my mind. And if you want what is in my mind, do this. Fear me and you will start the process of getting my wisdom and my understanding. What does fear of the Lord mean? Fear of the Lord, I've mentioned it before. This is what it means There's three different fears, a fear of terror, a fear of respect, a fear of awe. The fear of the Lord is all of it. 
But what does it result of the fear of the Lord? The result of the fear of the Lord is fear God and you will walk in his ways. Fear God and you will love him. Fear God, you will serve him. Fear God and you will hold fast to him. Fearing God is walking, loving, serving, giving, holding fast to him. The fear of the Lord gives you the mind of God and you will find joy, peace, rest, happiness in God's mind rather than in your situation no matter what your situation is. What is in God's mind? I just want to pull some passages out of the New Testament. I'm looking at the time. The time is gone. So I'll go through these really quickly. But God has some really rich golden jewels in the New Testament. And he has them off of one word. And one of his golden jewels is the word trust. Number A, trusting in God when it hurts is trust. He wants us to trust in him. But did you know what? You cannot trust unless there is an issue at hand. Say that again. You cannot trust unless you're forced to trust because there is an issue and there is no issue if suffering is gone. What is in God's mind and why would God allow suffering? Well, he has a driving word and his driving word is I want you to trust me and if I got rid of all suffering, the word trust is then out of your vocabulary, out of your mind, and out of your control because there is no reason for you to trust me if nothing bad is coming your way. What I want you to do is trust me. You can't trust God unless you have a reason, and the only way you can have a reason is through if suffering exists. Maybe that's why God is saying, nah, I'm going to continue suffering. Another word is believe. Believing in God when it feels absent, suffering is belief. There's no belief until there's mystery. If the mystery is solved, your belief is literally over. Therefore, when God feels absent, what does he want you to do? He wants you to believe. And when he feels absent and when you believe, you have then started the richest, strongest belief in your life that you've ever had. We believe God, and if we don't feel his presence, then we're like, well, I'm not going to believe in you anymore because I don't feel your presence. Well, if you feel his presence, you're no longer believing. You believe when you don't feel his presence. Because if you believe when you don't feel his presence, you're believing in something, the source of your salvation, which is the cross that was given 2,000 years before then. So get rid of suffering. You'll have to get rid of the word belief. Faith is another word. Having faith in God when you are in agony is faith. Faith is faith is believing in something that you cannot see. If you see God, you no longer have to have faith. Is there going to be faith in heaven? There's not going to be faith in heaven. Why? Because we'll look God face to face. We look God face to face. We don't have to believe in something that we can't see. But right now, I will tell you that we're in a world of suffering, we're in a world of pain, and we are in a world of faith. Maybe that's why he's leaving it in here. Love. Love's another golden jewel. Loving God when you don't feel um, feel it from him is love. John says this is love that he loved you and gave himself up for you. Gave himself up for you. We did not love him, but yet he loved us. This is what love is. Is it is sacrifice. In fact, there is no love without sacrifice. There's no way you can sacrifice unless there is suffering that takes place. Maybe this is God's mind.
Number nine, we are people who don't like suffering, but if it had never entered our world, we would never have had faith, hope, and love. My mind would literally say, get rid of suffering. Get rid of suffering. It would be an unwise decision because I don't know what God knows. God knows something bigger. God knows something better. God knows something more glorious. And faith, hope, and love are something that he wants you to be doing on this earth. So we can ask the question, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust his sovereignty or do you want to change his sovereignty? I look at God and I see the cross and I know he's sovereign. And I say, God, I trust you. Job did as well. Though he slay me, my hope is in you. I trust you under all circumstances and the challenge that you would do as well. God, we just thank you that you are sovereign. Living in this life, God, where there is no one in control would be a scary situation to all of us. We thank you, God, that you have given, have taken the position of control and you've never given it away to anybody else. I pray, God, that as a people, as a church, as individuals, we will rest on your sovereignty. We will rest on your control. We will rest on your strength. We will rest on your plan. God, help us not to evaluate you in regards to what takes place here on earth. Help us to evaluate you in regards to what took place 2,000 years ago. See you on the cross and respond the way we are supposed to respond to it. In Christ's name, amen.